0: We're now going to have our Bible reading. Uh, if you don't have a Bible with you this morning, you should find a, a Black Pew Bible in the pew backs in front of you. Uh, we're going to be reading today from one Corinthians chapter fifteen, verses one to twenty eight. And then the church Bibles, that's on page one one seven five. That's one Corinthians 15, 1 to twenty eight. In accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, and then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than five hundred brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, and worthy to be called an apostle. But I, Because I persecuted the church of God, but by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it, is, it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed." Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misinterpreting God because we testify that God, that he raised Christ, whom he had not raised If it is true that the dead are not raised, for if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in the life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come all the, also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, by each in his own order. Christ the fruits, then at his coming those who belong to the Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of God, the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to destroy is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is expected who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all.
1: We are going to be zooming in on verses 12 to 28, which is still a lot there for us this morning. But we today are going to focus again on the resurrection. Yes, last week was Easter, but we want to kind of pull out more of the implications of the resurrection. So we're going to be kind of zooming on verses 12 to 28 um, together. But before we do that, let me just pray for us one more time to calm our hearts and minds. Our Heavenly Father, we are grateful that you give us your word um, and we can trust it, um, that it really is living and speaking And we're thankful that as we uh, sit under your word, as we hear it spoken, as we hear it read, um, we can uh, listen knowing that it's not in vain, that it's not empty, but um, you speak and your power is found in your word. Um, I want to ask that we would be able to see um, and maybe even, again, be unsettled by the reality of the resurrection this morning. Um, I ask for uh, for my help, um, for you know my sins are many. Um, And so would you help us, uh, give us ears to hear and eyes to see truly. We're praying in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, have you ever heard the phrase, nine-day news? Nine days. Well, the newspaper and the um, print industry use this phrase, nine-day news, as sort of a shorthand for the fact that the best front-page news on a newspaper will only remain in readers' thoughts for a full nine days at very best. Only like the, the 50 point all capital front page news has any hope of any long term attention. Forget about the fourth or the fifth page. And it's been about seven days since the tragedy and horror of the Sri Lanka attacks. Sort of with the sort of newspaper lingo in our heads, sometime this week, the world's attention and thoughts are going to move on. And that's in the increasingly smaller and smaller physical paper-print industry. Nine days is a generous time. It's a generous estimation, isn't it? In the past 10 years, we've kind of moved into the digital news, and we now have sort of a 24-hour news cycle. There's no time to digest, digest anything these days. Nowadays, we often look at news on our phones, and we just scroll and scroll and scroll, after five minutes of scrolling, if you're like me, you forget why you're even looking at your phone. Never mind what the headline is or what the story you just read is. As a culture, professors, academics, psychologists all agree we live in an incredibly distracted age. The world seems to us to be moving at sort of mock speed because of this, this overload of information. And our access to sort of the endless conversation is making us, as a culture, anxious and a depressed people. It's too much to keep up with. And yet, if you feel like me, you feel compelled and obliged to try and keep up. And so we become overwhelmed. We have a spirit of skepticism now. we have seen the rise of fake news. It also breathes a sense of sympathy fatigue. There's so many campaigns and causes and tragedies that we're sort of commanded to be, sort of care about with all of our heart. And it can be exhausting if we're honest, many of us just feel apathetic to it all. On on the whole, our exposure to the sort of endless concerns of the world is kind of leading us into sort of an apathetic despair about where we're going as a human race. What's the point behind all this, you might ask? Is it like just an endless cycle over and over? Well, the Apostle Peter spoke into this skeptical and distracted age and uh, his second letter in verse in chapter three, and he said this. He said scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, "Where's the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the very beginning of creation." How's that sound? Everything just keeps going. Nothing's new. Nothing changes. We're in this endless cycle. Anyone ever feel like that? As a culture, we try and numb ourselves to the fear that we might just be on a cosmic hamster wheel. Even Paul argues later in in the end, towards the end of this chapter in verse 32, he says, if this is true, let us eat, let us drink, because tomorrow we're just going to die. Live your life, enjoy it, because at the end, there's nothing. Just keep scrolling, carry on, keep calm and carry on. Well, seven days ago as well, we sat in this room and we celebrated the news of the resurrection of Jesus. Now perhaps you may have already mentally moved on. Life's moving too fast. You're already at your nine-day attention span. Perhaps you might feel sympathy fatigue. While you accept that Jesus was raised from the dead, you struggle to really feel connected to it. It feels distant from you. Perhaps you're sitting here today and you're confused about the resurrection. Did it really happen? If we find it hard to verify news stories from yesterday, how can we be certain of something that happened 2,000 years ago? Or perhaps you're wondering, what in the world is the point of the resurrection all these centuries later? And you can sympathize with the scoffers. Everything's just been carrying on as it was from the beginning. Has anything changed? Is Jesus' resurrection really Good news for today. That's the question we're asking today. First, is it actual good news? Why does it matter that we need to believe in a bodily resurrection of Jesus from the dead? And second, is it good news for today, April 28th, 2019? Because we have a tendency when we think about Easter to kind of interpret in two ways. The first is sort of as a sentimental story meant to inspire us a metaphor of progress. Or we might interpret the resurrection as really happening, but it really only has to do with us one day floating away to heaven. And so it feels disconnected to us. Last week, um, the New York Times published an interview piece uh, with a lady by the name of Serene Jones, who is the president of Union Theological Seminary in New York. Not connected to the one in Wales, different uh, universities, but this large historic seminary she's the president of. And in this New York Times piece from last week, it was asked to her, isn't Christianity without a physical resurrection less powerful and awesome? When the message is about love, that's less religion and it's more philosophy. Listen to how she responds. For me, the message of Easter is that love is stronger than life or death. That's a much more awesome claim than that they would put Jesus in the tomb, and three days later he wasn't there. For Christians for whom the physical resurrection becomes a sort of obsession, that seems to me to be a pretty wobbly faith. What if tomorrow someone found the body of Jesus still in the tomb? Would that then mean that Christianity was a lie? No, faith is stronger than that. Sadly, this is the president of a large seminary saying this. But here in England... In a post-Christian society, we still have the vestiges of Christianity. Who wouldn't agree with that? Who wouldn't agree with that? We still celebrate the sentiment of Easter, Cadbury eggs and all. Jesus didn't actually come back to life, but it's a wonderful message that love is stronger than death or life. A watery saying all of society can agree upon, but it's not actual news. As we've read, Paul addresses this exact mentality surrounding the resurrection in verses 12 to nineteen, Now, many in the Corinthian church would have happily stood alongside Serene Jones and Union Seminary. In chapters 1 and 2 of Paul's letter, we discover that the Corinthians were obsessed with eloquence, worldly wisdom, and power. They want to sound impressive to the world around them, but they're not interested in sort of the humiliation of the crucifixion or the bizarre claim of the resurrection. They want a palatable gospel And so they accepted a philosophy which said the only real part of you that matters is what's on the inside, your soul. That's what's going to carry on when you die. So you can just forget about this bodily resurrection. Your body's just going to disintegrate. But your soul will sort of float on or continue in some way. Which is a sentimental and non-offensive idea that probably many non-religious people will believe at a funeral. Even in the first century, the belief that Jesus had bodily risen from the dead was scandalous. Who would believe that and that we are going to be resurrected with him? Who would believe that? The Corinthian church preferred an ethereal Jesus, a pill easy to swallow. So let's hear as Paul takes up that mentality and just pulls out the logic bit by bit. Let's start again from verse 12. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead... How can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. Now, Paul's saying, if being physically resurrected from the dead is an impossible category, even with God, then that means you deny that Jesus was physically raised from the dead. And if that's true, Corinthian church, if that's true, Serene Jones, if that's true, reader, then and we see The consequences. Let's read verse 14. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. Our preaching is vanity. Perhaps you've sat through sermons or even you're sitting here today and you're thinking, what are we we doing listening to him? What are we doing? If you think about it, this is extremely peculiar that we'd all come here to hear someone speak about an inspirational man who died 2,000 years ago. Or perhaps you've tried to share your faith with your family, friends, or co-workers, and you leave the conversation thinking, "What was the point of that?" It feels so disconnected. It feels so weak and powerless. Well, Paul's saying, "If Jesus has not been raised from the dead, then all those inclinations are absolutely true. If Jesus remains dead in some undiscovered tomb, why in the world are you listening to me? It's all smoke and mirrors. Or to put it another way, it's all makeup on a dead corpse of faith." If Jesus hasn't risen from the dead, then we're simply dressing up interesting, fun stories. Second, verse 15, we are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. Second, we see that if Jesus really hasn't risen from the dead, we're misrepresenting God, which is terrifying, isn't it? We speak in hollow sentimentalities and betray a real God. It's logically, it doesn't make any sense. If God is real, and he, Jesus didn't raise from the dead, we're doing him a disservice, and that's a terrifying thought. Third, verses 16 and 17. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Our faith is useless, and we're still in our sins. In our postmodern culture, or the culture we just live in, it's become very, very acceptable to sort of associate yourself with a religion like Christianity without any expectation of actually believing it. People call themselves Christians because they like the values of Christianity or what it might do for them. But Paul is saying, if you don't believe that Jesus was risen from the dead, then the Christian Christianity, your faith is useless. The Christian faith without the resurrection doesn't accomplish anything. It doesn't have any inherent power to rescue you or save you. It's just another useless philosophy that you're going to go to the grave with. To put another idea, it's a nice idea that will, hum- that will numb you to the reality of death and sin, but it won't do anything. If you're here this morning and you are unwilling to consider the possibility that Jesus is was really raised from the dead, then please don't waste your time. As Paul says in verse 32, if the dead are not raised, eat, drink, be married, because tomorrow we die. It is of actual no good to you to be a Christian without the hope of the resurrection. If Christ has not been raised, we have no hope of being resurrected with him. We really are just on the cosmic hamster wheel. Which leads to verse 18. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. We have perished if Christ has not been raised. If there's no resurrection of the dead, then those who have died, or in Paul's words, have fallen asleep, they're gone. Let's not be overly sentimental. There's really nothing past this, if that's the case. It is of no use talking about how Aunt Hilary sort of is in a better place, or her spirit lives on, or you can see her in the flowers. Because if Jesus has not risen, then God himself cannot redeem us. God himself could not go past death. Finally, Paul finishes in verse 19. And if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. We are to be pitied. The truly Christian life, the life of daily crucifixion and sacrifice so that others can live, is pitiful if it amounts to nothing. Think of all the missionaries, all the martyrs, Those who have died for the faith in Jesus, if there is no resurrection of the dead, how extremely sad and disheartening. Following the footsteps of Jesus, picking up your cross every day makes no sense unless we truly believe that Jesus has come out of the grave to redeem and save. How pointless and sad would all your worship, your time, your service, your obedience, your good values, how sad would be if that resulted in nothing of lasting importance so, Paul takes what seems to be a well intentioned, sentimental acceptance of a sort of a palatable Jesus, and he shows us that it's actually worthless without a belief in the hope of the resurrection. So, back to the question this morning Is Jesus' resurrection actually good news? How would you answer that question? Paul is forcing the Corinthian church and us to make a decision. either Either Easter really is good news, or it's an empty wives' tale. Unlike what our culture and Serene Jones says, there's no logical halfway house. In other words, it cannot be good fake news. It cannot be good fake news. There's no such thing. It's good news or it's an illusion. And Paul speaks adamantly, Christ has been raised to life. Believe, not just sentimentally. In Serene Jones' answer, she said that there are some Christians for whom the physical resurrection becomes a sort of obsession that seems to her to be a wobbly faith. My prayer today is that we would count ourselves among the obsessed because it is our certain and sure hope in this ever-changing, very wobbly world. Jesus Christ had been raised from the dead for you. Believe. Turn from trusting in your own ability to save yourself or think that you have control and entrust yourself into the care of a risen king. But the second part of the question is Jesus' resurrection good news for today? Is it good news for today? J.R. Tolkien, i the author of Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit, many of you may know, tried to answer this question by creating a word. Now, Tolkien, he relied heavily on Norse mythology as sort of the building blocks of his characters and the plots. And in Norse mythology, the storyline always followed the same pattern, this sort of endless cycle of universal defeat. Ragnarok, the Norse apocalypse story, was this cyclical story. The giants destroy the gods and humankind in a final battle, and then they rise out of the primordial waters, have a fight, go back down over and over. This rise, catastrophic end, new beginning. Rise, catastrophic end, new beginning. But Tolkien took these characters and he created a turn in the story which was unique, and he called this turn a U catastrophe. A U catastrophe. The prefix U coming from similar words like Galeon, good news. Put that together with catastrophe would mean a sudden happy or a sudden good catastrophe. A catastrophe changes everything. It literally means a sudden, all-encompassing event. And Tolkien uses this imagery in his stories and eventually said, but the real, the resurrection of Jesus is the ultimate eucatastrophe of world history. The happy, the happy catastrophe. It rearranges everything. So for those of us who accept that Jesus' resurrection is true, we agree, or at least we think it should change everything. But if we're honest, usually we think of the resurrection, we think of it as a past event that's been done or a vague hope for the future. What does it mean today, presently? So, Paul takes that up in verses 20 to 28. Let's quickly read through that again. But, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by man came death... By man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then in his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put into subjection, it is plain that he's accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. There's a lot in there. So, let me make it simple. (laughs) Jesus has inaugurated a whole new creation. There's a lot to talk about, but the point that Paul's making, Jesus has inaugurated a new creation, not just a new religion or philosophy, not just an ethereal hope that you'll go somewhere nice when you die. He has inaugurated a new creation. Let me try and make this uh, clear, because at the very beginning, Paul used this terminology, first fruits, and I think that helps unpack it a bit. So uh, in our garden at home, Our neighbor has some clematis and all these different vines uh, growing on the fence in between his property and our property. And we've only seen it bloom once or twice and there's different colors that uh, bloom at different times. And uh, two weeks ago I was looking and there was one vine that had hundreds of bulbs ready to open. I couldn't remember. Is it going to be red or is it going to be the pinky white flower? And then last week one single bulb opened up to reveal a pinky white flower. Now from just that one little flower, I knew that all the hundreds of other little bulbs, what would look like, they would be pinky white as well. This is the idea of first fruits. But I I know it is a flower, not a fruit. The first fruit, or the first crop, the first flower, it's like a preview of what's to come. There's more of this coming. It's almost like a movie trailer. And Jesus' physical resurrection is a preview of the future. Jesus has risen from the dead so that we too can rise from our sleep. As Paul describes, the heavens and earth will come together, and Jesus is the first fruit of that new kind of creation. We have not just read it, but Rob read verse 4 as we kind of came together. And in verse 4, it's very interesting because Paul writes that he was raised... On the third day, according to the scriptures, he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. All of chapter 15 is about creation imagery. And it begs a question, though: what scripture is Paul thinking of which would be fulfilled when Jesus rose on the third day? Well, my theologian Mike Reeves makes a case that before anything else, almost certainly, Genesis 1 and the third day of creation would have been. In Paul's mind, do you remember what was created on the third day? Let me let me read it to you. Then God said, "Let the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants, and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it, according to their various kinds." And it was so. Jesus is raised on the third day, and he is the first fruits of a new creation. Paul continues with this creation imagery. He even characterizes Jesus as the second Adam. For Paul, it's as if there's only two men in the whole world, Adam and Jesus. And the rest of humanity is either in Adam or in Jesus. One bound to decay and corrupt, the other bound to life and resurrection. Now, these images of Adam and fruit are brought together because on the third day of Genesis, Genesis 1, we see that the first fruits of creation... Reproduce according to their kind because in them are seeds. The next generation is within the fruit. Thus, what happens to the fruit happens to the seed. So it is, says Paul, with Adam and Christ, they are the first fruits of two different crops one of death, the other of life. All others are but seeds in that fruit. There's one creation bound to decay, infected by sin, corrupted, in need of saving. And so Jesus comes to renew that creation. The resurrection is the inauguration of that renewed creation. Do you remember what God said to Adam when the garden was complete? What did he tell him to do? He said, go, be fruitful, multiply, subdue the earth, and have dominion over it. What do we see in verse 24 at the end? Do you remember the word that keeps coming up? Subjection. Jesus' rule and reign has begun as he gathers all of creation under his dominion as the first Adam was supposed to. So that, last verse, 28, so that God may be all in all. So he might fill the pr- whole world with his, with his presence. Do you see that Paul's using <laughs> the imagery of a new creation? It's been re- inaugurated. Something new has happened. We are not destined to be caught in the endless cycle of death and decay. We're not stuck in the hamster wheel of sin. For those of us who place our trust in Jesus, it's as if we're seeds in Christ, the the first fruit of this new creation. As Paul says in his second letter to the Corinthian church, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone and the new has come. That means for those of you who trust in the announcement of the good news, you are a visible, tangible sign of a whole new creation. Okay. I know many of you thinking, you may have lost me there. What does that mean for me? Well, we're going to quickly end with this. Let's look back at the consequences of Jesus' resurrection. On the left, on the left, you'll see you'll see all the things we said. that would be true if Jesus hadn't been raised. Now let's look what happened if he had been raised. We said that if the resurrection didn't happen, our preaching would be in vain. It would just be an empty show. But if Jesus really did rise from the dead, then when we share this good news of his resurrection, that a new creation has been inaugurated, it has the power to raise the dead, to move people from being in Adam to being in Christ, to move people from the realm of sin and death to the realm of life and righteousness. When you speak about Jesus, however weak it may feel, you are providing people with an opportunity to be born again. We said that the resurrection, if the resurrection didn't happen, then we'd be misrepresenting God. But if Jesus really did rise from the dead, then we are ambassadors of the real true God. We're not peddling another religion or philosophy. We have an announcement from God himself to give to the world. We're not just giving opinions about life you and I are called to present the real God of heaven and earth to the people in our lives. We said if the resurrection didn't happen, then our faith is useless and we're still in sin. But if Jesus really did rise from the dead and inaugurate a new creation, then our faith in the everyday humdrum of life is producing eternal fruit that will not fade. Your daily dying to self, however small and minuscule it is, has eternal significance. Your life is not pointless. Why? Because Jesus has risen. If Jesus has been raised, then he really did accomplish salvation for us. The empty tomb proves that there is more righteousness in Jesus than there is sin in the world. The empty tomb proves that there is more righteousness in Jesus than sin in the world. There is no charge that anyone can bring against you. We say that if the res- resurrection didn't happen, then our death is the end of us. We will perish But if Jesus did rise from the dead, and he is truly the first fruits, we too have hope that we will be resurrected. We don't have a hope and a vague idea that we'll go off to a better place and sit on some clouds with a harp. We hope, as we look at gravestones, that they will rise again, that we will be able to kneel and confess Jesus as Lord. As the Heidelberg Confession says, what is your only hope in life and death? Answer, that we belong to Jesus, both in body and in soul, both in life and in life. And in death, to Jesus, we said that if the resurrection didn't happen, then we're to be pitied. But if Jesus really did rise from the dead, then we are considered—you are—an heir of this new creation. You have a king who has given you authority and power. As he brings us dominion, he says, "Go! I've given you all authority to bring this announcement of victory to the ends of the world." You are an honored ruler and you have a message from the king. Jesus' resurrection really is good news for today. It informs and explains our very daily existence. Again, we don't have time, but at the very end of uh, chapter 15, you'd expect, oh great, we're going to be resurrected, so we'll just wait. No, turn to the very last verse of chapter 15, verse 58. All this culminates in, chapter, in verse 58. Therefore, he says, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. What you are doing has eternal significance. If you trust the good news, that it really is good news, then your life will be filled with meaning, security, and hope from Jesus. He is the firstfruits of a new creation to which you belong. And your life, however weak you may feel, is an outpost of the kingdom of God, of a new creation right now, wherever you might be. So, in an age of hopelessness, don't back down from trusting in the good news of the real physical resurrection of Jesus that breaks through the cycle of death and decay. Don't allow yourself to become sentimental about the resurrection, count yourself among the obsessed people who believe that a new creation has begun. So as we end, I want to end by reading a poem by the American author John Updike that gets to the heart of this. We're going to end with this poem. John Updike writes, <clears throat> Make no mistake, if he rose at all, it was as his body. If the cell's dissolution did not reverse, the molecules re the amino acids rekindle, the church will fall. It was not as the flowers, each soft spring recurrent. It was not as his spirit in the mouths and fuddled eyes of the eleven apostles. It was as his flesh, ours. The same hinged thumbs and toes, the same valved heart, that pierced, died, withered, paused, and then regathered out of enduring might, new strength to enclose. Let us not mock God with metaphor, analogy, sidestepping transcendence, making of the event a parable, a sign painted in the faded credulity of earlier ages. Let us walk through the door. The stone is rolled back, not papier-mâché, not a stone in a story, but the vast rock of materiality that in the slow grinding of time will eclipse for each of us the wide light of day. And if we will have an angel at the tomb, make it a real angel." weighty with Max Planck's quanta, vivid with hair, opaque in the dawn light, robed in real linen, spun on a definite loom. Let us not seek to make it less monstrous for our own convenience or our own sense of beauty, lest, awakened in one unthinkable hour, we are embarrassed by the miracle and crushed by the remonstrance." The resurrection of Jesus is good news for today. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are, um, we're stunned that you have come to this world in weakness and in humility, um, and that you have carried our sins to the cross, and you have been vindicated, and you have defeated death, you have uh, the victory, and there, there is an empty tomb We're so thankful that in the age that seems to never end, of endless cycles and death and decay, we can trust that you have inaugurated a new creation. We're thankful for the ways in which that, um, what that says about our lives. We're thankful that we get the opportunity um, to be that tangible, visible sign of a new creation. We're thankful that we didn't have to do anything for it, but you have caused us to be born again and that you are recreating and redeeming the world. May our lives speak of the truth that Jesus really has risen from the dead. We praying in Jesus' name, amen.